emergency permission to a roofing company to continue working on removing snow and ice from the roof on the other end of the church down there. Uh, the other day, upon arrival in our cafe, Pastor Sean renamed it the Rainforest Cafe because of some delightful waterfalls that had developed. Uh, so many thanks to John, Ken, Scott, Tom, and our facilities team for all the work they're putting in to try to get some of those issues solved. Uh, so sorry for any distractions that may come up. <clears throat> Whether or not you'd consider yourself a Christian this morning, every human is concerned on some level about wrongs or perceived wrongs that are taking place in the world. But again, Christian or not, we basically fall into two camps with respect to which sort of wrongs we're most concerned about. So some are in camp one, more concerned about the wrong being done in the world out there than we are about the wrongs that we ourselves are participating in. And then others are in camp two, more concerned about the wrong being done in our own hearts than we are about the wrongs being done in the world out there. Which camp are you in this morning, I want to ask before we jump into our scripture text. I think there's actually a right answer to this particular question if we aim to be followers of Jesus. Remember the story he told about the two guys praying in public? Right, one of them prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, those sinners. And the other one can't look up. All he can do is beat his chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus wraps up the story. Which one do you think went home right with God? The second one. So as I sit down to write a sermon like this week's sermon about God's grace, I'm writing, just so you know, with a sincere desire that I and you all, my sisters and brothers that I'm preaching to on Sunday morning are coming here more concerned by the sin in our own hearts than we are about the sin in the world out there. I'm praying, for example, that we're more troubled by times that we slip back into old patterns this week than we are about the times that people out there wronged us this week. If that is in fact the case, if you've come here broken this morning, aware of your sin, crying out to God, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, then what we're about to see in God's word will be good news. On the other hand, if that's not the case, and we've come here with our noses turned up at the world out there, the sinful world, feeling like we pretty much nailed it this week when it comes to obedience, <clears throat> today's scripture text probably won't scratch our itch. It might, might feel like putting ointment on a spot where we don't have a cut. So without trying, I'm not trying to preach a mini sermon before my sermon, I just wanted to take a moment and lay that groundwork and invite us just to take a minute here at the outset to stop and ask God to take his flashlight and just shine it around in those deepest, darkest corners of our hearts, those places that we feel pretty uncomfortable when we see what's there, places that we've fallen this week, and in particular, let's spend a moment identifying in our hearts ways in which we've slipped back into old patterns. So that the scripture text isn't just this abstract study, but one that we are aware is a lived one for us. What, what well-worn path are you having a hard time escaping right now? Let's take a moment there and then I'll pray.
Lord, you're big and you love us. And that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. Celebrities blackballed from their industries, honorary degrees revoked, social media accounts deleted against the user's will. Some say it's cancel culture and it's terrible. Others say it's accountability culture and it's necessary. I look forward to one day weighing in on that argument as it's critical, to, I think, to discern what God says about that dynamic that's real in our society and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But for the purposes for leading into today's scripture text, I'm not as interested actually in uh, arguing for or against so-called cancel culture as I am in a thought experiment regarding folks who have been canceled, so to speak, for doing something terrible, but then somehow have been rehabilitated to some degree in the perception of the public. So the Hollywood star who declared his career over after multiple run-ins with the law and pejorative statements about people of other ethnicities. Then 10 years later, people move on and he returns to Hollywood, gets nominated for Oscars, receives standing ovations, and he stands up at award shows. Whether you agree with any of that or not, it serves as an example of a canceled person, so to speak, who has been rehabilitated to some degree. Still, we know exactly what would happen if a new clip leaked tomorrow to the public containing bigoted speech by that same Hollywood star, don't we? It'd be the cancellation of all cancellations, right? So question, is that God's cancel policy, so to speak, toward us as well? I've had many conversations with people who think of God that way. Here's what I mean. Once instructed, people can bring themselves, I see it often, to believe that God's grace actually is big enough to forgive even a massive, massive moral failure. It's hard to believe at first, but then they realize, wow, I guess there is actually no sin too big for God to forgive. Thank you, God, for giving me a second chance. Yet, they remain convinced that if they ever blow it to that degree again, then they'll be canceled. A relapse, in other words, would mean that God's done with me once and for all. Is that how you think of God? In our text today, after an episode of exemplary faithfulness, Abraham goes back to an old sin that he had struggled with years before. Would you turn with me to Genesis 20? Genesis 20, you're going to want to follow along with us. Let's remember as you're turning there what we've seen in this sermon series as we've been tracing the life of Abraham. We saw back in chapters 11 and 12 that he's called by God. He steps out in faith to leave everything he knew, and then he's given promises that God would bless him, would give him descendants, and that all nations on earth would be blessed through him. Then in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, he fails to trust God, he blows it. Right Then there's a little bit of a comeback. Chapters 13 and 14, he's faithful, and then God reaffirms in chapter 15, hey, those promises I gave you back in chapter 12, they will come true. Then... Chapter 17, 16, 17, tries to take matters into his own hands, right? Tries to make God's promises come true on his own effort, and it leads to disastrous results. But then, where we left off last time, chapters 18 and 19, he acts in faith. He uh, intercedes and pleads with God on behalf of uh, folks who are facing imminent destruction, and God affirms his promises right there in chapter 18. 
And not only that those promises will come true, but he says within the year, Sarah will have a child. The promises are imminent. So if we're reading along, we have to expect that the next story is going to be a birth narrative, right? Abraham's learned from his mistakes. Now for happy times. Instead, we get a colossal failure. And actually, Abraham fails in the exact same way that he failed back in chapter 12. Almost as if he hasn't learned a thing from all that has transpired since then. But the relapse we're going to see today isn't just there as an interesting little plot twist. It actually creates a chance for God to answer a theological question that we might otherwise not know the answer to. Here's what it is. Can Abraham sin big enough that God will cancel him? Or maybe even more to the point of this chapter, can Abraham sin repeatedly enough that God's promises to him will be nullified, wiped out? And obviously, by extension, many of us are thinking, well, does my repeated sin put me in danger of God canceling me? This story, like many biblical stories, gets told in a sandwich type of format. Uh, scholars call it a chiasm. I kind of tried to tab it so you can see the structure. Looks like this. The beginning matches the end. There are different parts that kind of match each other. So at the beginning, Abimelech takes Sarah. At the end, he compensates to give Sarah back. Abraham prays for him. And then there's two confrontations. God's confronting Abimelech and Abimelech confronting Abraham. And that all points to this centerpiece in which, uh, in verse 8, we're going to see Abimelech being afraid. So we're going to walk through that briefly. And then once we've digested the sandwich, sorry, we will zoom out on the story to note three big picture takeaways at the end. So first, Abimelech takes Sarah, verses 1 and 2. Take a look at that with me as I read. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the ter territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. These are places where Abraham and his family are not known. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham's not alone in slipping back into old sins. We started our time today asking God to show us what those are in our own hearts. We all have sins that tend to entangle us more than others are entangled by them. Sin that's hard for me to shake, but that's maybe fairly easy for you to avoid, vice versa. For Abraham, he seems to consistently struggle to believe that God will protect him, specifically from powerful people who find his life attractive. So time and time again, he gives Sarah up to them to save himself. The author doesn't say much here about why Abraham does this because he assumes we've read chapter 12. Right? But back in chapter 12 and then even later in this passage starting in verse 11, we find out what Abraham's thinking when he does this horribly wicked thing to his wife. He's worried that various kings will kill him to get to his wife, who amazingly is still attractive at 90. So he keeps asking her to say that she's his sister and let herself be taken without a fight. Also, that these kings won't kill Abraham. How do you do that to your wife? How do you not trust God to protect you after all you've seen him do for you? This is awful. But as soon as I say that, I realize, wait, is Abraham so different than me? Am I really completely unwilling 
to put others in harm's way so that I can be protected? Am I really completely steadfast in my belief that God will protect me without my scheming up sinful ways to protect myself? We can all slip back into our patterns if our circumstances put enough strain on us. Are you aware of those old patterns that you're susceptible to fall back into under stress? Second, God confronts Abimelech in verses 3 through 7. Even if Abraham is willing to let this horrible thing happen, God isn't willing to let it happen. Let's read, starting in verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Abraham sins, but God confronts Abimelech. Do you notice that? It sort of reminds me of Lion King, when uh, young Simba and Nala wander off to a place where they shouldn't be, scary place with the hyenas, right? They're in big trouble until Daddy shows up, right? But then when Daddy shows up, whom does he immediately confront? Not Simba. Star, right? Abraham gets the Simba treatment here as his relationship with his father leads his father to confront Abimelech instead of confronting Abraham. Abimelech, you're a dead man, God begins in verse 3. Let's do that. And let's face it, Abraham deserved for God to be saying this to him. Instead, God says it to Abimelech. But we depart from our Lion King analogy here because we find out that Abimelech is innocent, unlike Uncle Star in the movie, he's not innocent. Abimelech hasn't slept with Sarah, and of course he had planned to, but when he had made that plan, he was just taking at face value what both Abraham and Sarah had said, verse 5. And so Abimelech makes his plea before God. Take a look at it in verse 4. See if it doesn't remind you of Abraham's plea back in chapter 18. Abimelech says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say she's my sister and he herself said I'm, uh, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. There are echoes here of Abraham himself approaching God back in chapter 18, that plea in which he says, won't the judge of all the earth do what is right? And sure enough, God's evaluation of Abimelech's heart is that he sees integrity there. Abimelech doesn't personally know Abraham's God, but he and his people are what the Bible sometimes calls, calls God-fearers. While they don't necessarily attach themselves to the covenant community or fully embrace the one true God, they show reverence for the Lord. And they seek to obey the law uh, that he's written on their hearts through their consciences. Still, Abimelech would have fallen into sin if God hadn't kept him from it here. As God reminds him in verse 6, right? See that? It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Do those last two words catch you by surprise when God says against me? 
it was I who kept you from sinning against me. That's not what we'd expect. God's saying, if Abimelech would have gone through with this, it wouldn't have first and foremost been a sin against Sarah. It wouldn't have first and foremost been a sin against Abraham. It would have first and foremost been a sin against God. Because as the Bible consistently teaches, God is always the most offended party when we sin, even in our most private sins. Yet, God tells Abimelech, you get to keep your life if you return Sarah, verse 7. What do you think Abimelech thought of Abraham at this point? If I'm Abimelech, I can think of a few choice words I might use to describe Abraham. But don't miss this. Even though Abimelech's opinion of Abraham has changed, surely it has, God's opinion of Abraham hasn't changed. Abimelech must think of Abraham at this point as a jerk, a coward, right? What word does God use to describe Abraham, verse 7? Prophet. That's all he says about him, you see that? Despite Simba's trespassing into the elephant graveyard, he's still the son of the king and the heir to the throne. And despite Abraham giving up his wife once again, he's still God's prophet and heir of the promises. Friends, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but even if your relapses into sin have led to a change in your family's opinion of you, even if your relapses into sin have led to a change in your coworkers' opinion of you, even if your relapses into sin have led to a change in your friends' and neighbors' opinions of you, God's opinion of you has not changed. If you belong to him, when he comes roaring into your moment of crisis, it's first and foremost to confront your enemies, not to put you in your place. Third, the middle part, the focal point of this passage, verse 8, Abimelech's afraid after this dream, as he should be. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. I'm actually going to just leave this here for a moment without comment. Because when a biblical author structures a narrative like this, he's trying to direct our attention to what's right there at the focal point. And as such, we'll be better equipped to catch the layers of what's going on here uh, at the end after we've read the whole narrative. So we'll circle back to that at the end. Let's move here to the other confrontation. A second confrontation. This time not God confronting Abimelech, Abimelech confronting Abraham. Follow along as I read verses 9 through 13. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. When I was pirating music back in the days of Napster, when everyone was doing that, uh, I'm pretty sure it was someone who wasn't a Christian who called me out for it, if I remember correctly. Do you know that you're stealing artists' property when you download pirated songs like that, they said? Stung. 
believers in Jesus, have you ever been confronted on your words or actions by someone who is not a believer? What happens, after all, we don't believe that we became Christians because we were the best humans on the planet. Actually, for many of us, it was just the opposite. And on the other side, God gives his common grace to everyone, such that we know we all know unbelievers who are pretty morally upright people. So it happens, but it stings in a unique sort of way when we're called to task by someone who hasn't yet come to know the grace of Christ like we have. Yet, they're possibly living more morally than we are, at least in some ways. That's Abraham and Abimelech here. Look at each of their attitudes toward adultery, for example. We've got Canaanite texts from this time, from this area, uh, that talk of adultery as a great sin, it's called which is the language that's used in verse 9, because Abimelech is horrified at the idea that Abraham almost made him guilty of a great sin. For Abraham's part, he seems to have forgotten that adultery is a great sin. He's willing to give his wife up to be a victim of it. So here's Abimelech, who has no covenant relationship with God, instructing Abraham, the father of faith, on what sorts of things should be done and shouldn't be done by decent human beings, regardless of their faith or what God they worship, right? You see that there at the end of verse 9? You have done to me things that ought not to be done, he says. Of course, Abraham comes back with his explanation, verse 12. Well, it wasn't totally a lie. She was my half-sister before she ever became my wife. And then in verse 13, it's just painful to read. He says, hey, it's nothing personal against you, Abimelech. Listen, this has been Sarah and my normal arrangement for years, no matter where we go together. In other words, chapters 12 and 20 probably weren't the only times that Abraham did this. Can you imagine being Sarah? Back in chapter 11, you're the wife of a pagan moon worshiper, and one day this pagan moon worshiper wakes up and says, I've been called by the one true God, we've never worshipped before, to leave our hometown for a new land. And if you can imagine that, now imagine your husband tacks on to that. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to need you to do me a solid here whenever we go to a new place uh, where they don't know us. You're beautiful. I'll probably get killed so that they can take you. So to avoid that, let's just say that you're my sister. And then worst case, you end up somebody else's wife, but at least I'm still alive. Is that cool? That Sarah has any respect for Abraham at all after that. Any willingness to know or trust Abraham's God, that's amazing to me. And Abimelech must just be standing there listening to this in verse 13, like, this is the most messed up. What is wrong with you, Abraham? Sometimes non-Christians are right about the sin that they see in us. God didn't tell Abraham to treat his wife this way, just the opposite. Abraham has slipped back into self-protection mode because he imagines the worst. When you evaluate a situation, do you ever imagine that things are going to be worse than they actually end up being? Abraham was dead wrong about these people. They did fear God. In this case, they demonstrated more fear of God than he did. We can be guilty of imagining our neighborhoods and workplaces as more hostile than they really are, too. And then even beyond that, after we evaluate the threats, rightly or wrongly, like Abraham, the further temptation comes to take selfish steps to protect ourselves from those threats. Like maybe we wouldn't give up our families to a harem in order to protect our lives, but we might, for example, give up our time with our families in order to protect our jobs. 
to a sinful degree. We might give up our integrity in order to protect our retirement accounts. After these two confrontations, now the final section. Abimelech compensates, Abraham prays. Abimelech's eager to make right the wrong that was done in the first two verses of the story. Follow along with me as I finish out the chapter. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, that's funny, by the way, a thousand pieces of silver. That was a bride price of 200 brides at the time, unheard of. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The gift, the exorbitant price, the words spoken all indicate that Abimelech is desperate to make this right on a few different levels. One, he wants to restore Sarah's honor so that everyone present is absolutely clear that no guilt could be attributed to Sarah. Two, he also wants to appease whatever deity closed up the wombs of everyone in his household. Did you catch that in verse 18? And sure enough, God's forgiveness is demonstrated by the opening, the reopening of the wombs in verse 17. But did you notice that God didn't do that? He didn't reopen the wombs directly in response to Abimelech's gifts, did he? What does he do it in response to? When God heals his household, what does he do it in response to? Verse 17. It's in response to Abraham's prayer for their healing. Why in response to prayer? Like if God was already ready, willing to heal and forgive Abimelech and his family, why wouldn't he just do it? Because a few chapters ago, the God of the universe stated his intention not only to bless all the nations on earth, but to bless all the nations on earth through Abraham and Abraham's family. And that commitment by God has not changed one bit as a result of Abraham's sin. If Abimelech's household is going to receive healing, a blessing from God, God wants that healing to be mediated through Abraham. Still, weak, flawed, relapsing Abraham. Imagine your Abraham praying that prayer in verse 17. Sometimes I feel like an imposter as a pastor. Especially when you all entrust me with the privilege of praying over you in your hours of grief. I think to myself, why do I get the privilege of going before the Lord on these people's behalf as their pastor? I'm no better than anyone else. I wonder what kind of weight is Abraham feeling? as he prays this prayer in verse 17, knowing that for no other reason besides his call from God, God has chosen to withhold healing until he hears Abraham ask for healing on these people's behalf. You know, as Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, we are now counted children of Abraham by faith, as we'll talk about more later in this series. Galatians 3, 7 says that. And as such, there's a sense in which we are the people through whom God still purposes to mediate his blessing to the world. So North Suburban Church, how are we doing with living out our calling to be a blessing to the folks 
around us on the North Shore who don't yet know Christ? What sort of brokenness is God using us to heal in our neighborhoods? Now that we've surveyed the text, three observations, summary observations on this passage before we close. One, our view of God changes our views of ourselves and of others, but doesn't change God's view of us. Here's what I mean. When we view God as smaller than we ought to view him, we end up viewing ourselves as bigger than we ought to view ourselves. There's an inverse relationship there. Abraham didn't believe that God was big enough to rescue him. He had a small view of God. He did believe somehow, though, that he was big enough to rescue himself. But there's another impact of viewing God as smaller than we ought. Not only do we view ourselves as bigger than we ought, but our view of others is inappropriately diminished. You can hear the condescension in Abraham's voice, can't you? Verse 11, there's no fear of God at all in this place. Direct result of having that small view of God. So with all the disastrous consequences of Abraham's small view of God, that it results in too big a view of himself, too small of a view of those around him, you'd think that God might change his view of Abraham in response to this. No, God's not surprised by Abraham's sin, so he remains as committed and as gracious to Abraham as ever. I mean, Abraham only gets richer as a result of this whole saga. Do you notice that? Do you see all he got from Abimelech there at the end of the chapter? Did you know how many times this incident gets brought up after this in the Bible? Let's take a guess how many times. Five, zero, not once. We don't see it later in Genesis. We don't see it the whole rest of the Bible, not mentioned once. If we slip into believing a God who's too small, believing in a God who's too small, it can have disastrous consequences for our egos and for our relationships with others, but it won't make God waver for one second on his commitment to us. Second observation. Abimelech fears God in a way that Abraham doesn't. Yet, Abraham isn't replaced. The way the structure of this passage drives at the center point highlights this. Abraham fears God. That's the middle point of the passage. I mean, Abimelech fears God. That's the middle point, midpoint of the passage that all the rest of it drives at. Abraham saying there's no fear of God in this place, while the lacking fear of God was actually in his own heart. Still, though, Abraham isn't replaced. If God was like many of our bosses, he might say, Abimelech, after this scenario, I see much more potential in you than I do in Abraham. If I had given you the visions and direction, Abimelech, that I had given to Abraham, you'd be a much better representative of me than Abraham has been. Abraham, you're fired. Instead, Abraham keeps his role. Why? Because God didn't give him his role on the basis of his great faith or great deeds in the first place. God gave him the role and the faith and the deeds, for that matter, simply because it, that's what it delighted God to do. And that's humbling when we apply it to ourselves. We, the church, we're often sinful, failing. Still, we're called to be intercessors for those who have not yet received Jesus Christ. And our sinful black backsliding will not result in our being replaced in that role as a kingdom of priests mediating God's blessings to a hurting world. 
third observation, final observation. Abraham's not the hero of his story. Not this particular small story, not Abraham's big story. The God who opens wombs is the hero of this story. And after this story, this God's about to do it again, this time for Sarah herself. If it wasn't clear before, this story makes it abundantly clear that if God's promises and purposes are to be fulfilled, as he told Abraham that they would be back in chapter 12, the credit is not going to belong to Abraham or to any other human being, for that matter, for pulling it off. As it is for all of us, Abraham is not helping God carry out his plans. God's carrying out his plans despite Abraham's all-too-frequent fumbling. So our big idea today is this. It's a long one. I know you guys don't like it when I have long, big ideas. I tried to trim it. I'll just go slow. When we've slipped back into old sinful patterns, as we all do, let's continue to trust the promises of the God who didn't choose us on the basis of our morality or our faith. We all slip back into sinful patterns sometimes. We saw today the promises still stand. So when we slip back into old sinful patterns, let's continue to trust the promises of the God who didn't choose us in the first place on the basis of our morality or our faith. I don't know about you, but I'm regularly tempted to conclude I've blown it for good this time. Surely this is the one that will push God over the brink and make him move on from me, to hand off his purposes for me to someone else to do much better than I've done. But Abraham's story doesn't turn out that way. God's promises stand, period. Back at the beginning of Abraham's pilgrimage, chapter 12, and now as he's nearing the end of his pilgrimage, these two almost identical episodes, chapters 12 and 20, serve as bookends in which Abraham's fearful lack of faith is forgiven. In which God's promises are reaffirmed despite failure. Which of God's promises still stand despite our failure? Well, all of them. For example, just to name a few, I will never leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31. That still stands despite your failure. I work all things together for your good, Romans 8. That still stands, despite your relapse. If you lack wisdom, ask me and I'll give it to you, James 1. The good work I began in you I will carry to completion, Philippians 1. I'm coming soon, Revelation 22. Those promises all stand. They are yes in Christ. And that means that those of us who are in Christ can take those promises to the bank, even if we found ourselves backsliding into old sin habits. What does it mean to be in Christ? That's the way the New Testament talks about the union, so to speak, that we have with Jesus, our Messiah, when we enter into relationship with him. It's like we've hitched our wagons to his cart so that where he goes, we go. He died and was buried. We die to our sins and our former selves are buried with him in baptism. And he was raised to new life, so we come up from those waters to a new life of our own. He ascended to heaven we are seated with him in the heavenly places, spiritually speaking, Colossians 3 says that. That's what it means to be in Christ. And since he is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed, and through whom all the promises are fulfilled, our being found in him means that the promises to Abraham are his, 
and by extension now are ours. God is not the God of second chances. But as it turns out, that's good news. It's so much, he's so much better than that. If Jesus died to give us a second chance at being worthy recipients of God's promises, what makes us think we'd do better on our second chance? Look at our lives. We've all relapsed like Abraham and found ourselves unworthy time and time again. But Jesus didn't die to give us another chance or even another ten chances to do it right. He died so that his doing it right could be counted as our own and so that our failures and relapses could be washed away as they were put to death in his body on that tree. Friends, relapse, not even relapse, is enough to make God turn his back on you. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this note of grace, this word of forgiveness that you bestowed on us this morning. We're humbled by the fact that you chose us, not because of anything redeeming about our own self, but because of your own good purposes. We're humbled by the fact that you forgive us time and time again, that you don't abandon your purposes for us despite our massive failures. Lord, let that truth sink down deep in our hearts so that we believe it, even as lies get whispered into our ears about how you don't love us anymore, about how you're done with us. Lord, help us to reject those and to cling to your promise that you'll never leave or forsake us, that not even our sin can separate us from you if we belong to you. And Lord, help that truth, help that reality to change our hearts in such a way that we just want to obey you out of gratitude for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.